start off today with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to give you a brief description of what you're going to hear. Actually, I'm going to, let me switch this. I'm going to give you a brief description of what you're going to hear, and then I'm going to pray, okay? Uh, so first of all, I'm going to tell you some, after I pray, I'm going to tell you some background information about the passage. We're in Acts chapter 15, okay? I've just about lost my voice. Acts chapter 15, so I'm going to give you some background information. After that, I'm going to read a section of text from Acts chapter 15. I'm just going to read through this little section, okay? And when I'm done with that, I'm going to give you a couple of main points. I'm going to call those some walkaway points, okay? So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll go through those things. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day. I thank you for all that are here this morning. Lord, I just want to take this moment as I'm praying right now and ask, Lord, that you would fill me up with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would fill this room with your spirit. God, I pray that you'd be with each and every person that is here today, God, regardless of the reasons why they came or how they came or any of that. God, I just ask that when they leave this room, God, that they will be able to say, I met with God today. Lord, the Lord spoke to me today. He, he pointed me in a direction. Lord, if we're just getting together as a group of people, pointless. Lord, if we're able to get together here today and have the Spirit speak to us and commune with us, Lord, what a great thing that is. So, Lord, I ask before I do anything else that you would provide your spirit and your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to start off with some background information. Then we're going to do the text. And then we're going to give you some, I'm going to call them walk-away points, okay? So let's start off with some background information. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 15. Couple things that you need to understand. Let me start off with this one here. Uh, The people that you're going to hear. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture from the Bible, right? That's what we do here. I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and in Acts chapter 15, and you're going to hear some people. You're going to hear the names Paul and Barnabas. Anybody heard of those guys before? I hope so. If you've been here at all, you've heard of Paul and Barnabas, right? Uh, We know these two. We've been talking about them. They just went on a missions trip. Uh, We have Peter. Who's heard of Peter? Come on, you guys heard of the Apostle Peter, right? Um, we know him. We've talked about him before. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, okay? There's also a guy we're going to hear that we're going to hear the name James. Now, this is not the same James that was James, one of the apostles or one of the disciples. This James is uh, Jesus' earthly brother. Jesus had some brothers and sisters that were born after he was born, right? And so one of his brothers of this earth was a guy named James. And at this point, when we get to this part of the story of the history of the church, James has gone from, when Jesus was around, James was not a believer. And it'd be tough to. Could you imagine your brother saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm God in the flesh? You'd be like, yeah, right. Okay, so James has been kind of that way, even though Jesus was perfect. That may have even made it worse. Can you imagine having a perfect oldest brother? You're like, he's... And your mom is always saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> that would be hard to live up to, right? And we get from the scriptures that James, I mean, he was rejected. In fact, there was one point right before Jesus went to the cross that James, along with some of his other brothers, even mocked Jesus a little bit and said, why don't you go on up to Jerusalem? I mean, don't you want to be known by everybody? I mean, he's giving him a hard time. But James, and I can only imagine if your brother came back from the dead, that could change your mind, couldn't it? And that's exactly what James must have encountered. And James is now one of the elders of the church of Jerusalem. James is now a believer. In fact, I think of all the people that you read about in the Bible, that 
it's more convincing that Jesus must have been who he said he was, it's got to be James. Because if you're going to believe that your brother that you grew up with was the Messiah, that'd be a hard hurdle to overcome, wouldn't it? But James must have seen and believed that Christ came back from the dead and was convinced. But that's James. We're also going to hear about some people called Pharisees. Who's heard of Pharisees? Raise your hand if you've heard of Pharisees. Yep. Uh, when you hear the word Pharisee, do you usually think positive or negative? Negative. Most of the time you hear Pharisees, you're like, oh, the Pharisees, right? And, uh, you know, I always think of the song, you know, the Pharisees, because they're not fair, you see, right? And so that's not technically what it meant. But the Pharisees were a Jewish sect. They have this Judaism, the Jewish religion, and there was different kind of beliefs within that and different ideas, and one of them was the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were uh, believers in strict adherence to traditional law. This is what it said. This is what our ancestors did. This is what we ought to do. This is what's right. And that was kind of the, the, a summary statement. But we're going to read about some Pharisees in this passage that are now Christians. Okay, So that's kind of an interesting thing. Many of you may go, I didn't know any of them became Christians. Well, there, there were quite a few. In fact, uh, we know a couple of them. Paul, at one point, had been a Pharisee. He was trained as a Pharisee. And now he's a Christian. We also know of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and we find out later that he became a believer. And so we're going to hear about these people. Another thing about the background, before I get into the text, is the timeline. So I want you to think here for just a moment, okay? So we've got Paul on his way, used to be a Pharisee, on his way up to Damascus, he gets saved, okay? Becomes a Christian. Uh, Gentiles up in the city of Antioch, there's some Christians that have made up there. We don't know their names, but they're sharing the gospel with Gentile believers, people who are not Jews. Gentiles are getting saved in Antioch. Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, is then sent by God to a man named Cornelius and tells him about Jesus. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not a Jewish person. Cornelius gets saved along with several others that are there at his house. And the Spirit of God is given to them in a miraculous way that's noticeable and undeniable. Paul, at some point, goes to Jerusalem, confers with the elders because he's been sharing the gospel with Gentiles. This may seem like, what's the big deal? Understand, for all of Jewish history, Jews looked at themselves as God's chosen people. And now that their Messiah, the person they thought would rescue them, has come, the, the door is how they describe the door to the Gentiles, people who are not Jews, has been opened up. So this is a new thing for these Jewish people. This is our Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. That's how they saw Jesus, the ones that believed in him. But then what about all these people who aren't Jews? What about this occupying force of Romans? What about the Greeks that have influenced our culture in ways that we don't quite agree with? Suddenly they're becoming believers in the same Messiah. Paul goes up to Jerusalem, confers with the elders there. He actually talks about this in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, he talks about conferring with them about the gospel. Paul goes on his first missionary journey. He comes back to Antioch. We just studied that. At some point in here, he has an encounter with Peter in Antioch where he's talking with Peter about the gospel. And Peter has some drawbacks where even though Peter was the one that was taken to the Gentiles initially with Cornelius, Peter is kind of playing both sides of the fence. When he's around his Jews, he's acting like Jewish culture, Jewish tradition. But then when he gets around uh, Gentiles, when he's not around the Jews, he's kind of going along with them. And Paul confronts him and says, what are you doing, man? I don't think he said it that way. But he confronts him and he says, what's going on? 
Is the gospel not the gospel? Is the good news not the good news? Finally, you're going to hear a debate in this passage I'm going to read. Now, before I talk about this, I just want to tell you, can I share a pet peeve of mine? Is that okay? If I clarify it's a pet peeve, not the Bible, right? Can I do that? Okay. I am a firm believer in the value of good conversation that often takes the form of debate. Okay? I think that some, that's something that is lost, is, is being lost in the culture that we live in. We, we live in a situation now where if one person disagrees with another, they just get mad at each other. I'm, de- I de- I'm a high school teacher. I deal with kids all the time. If they have different opinions, you, de- you think they go, well, let's talk about it. Tell me about what you, I, I want to understand. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you think that's what they do? No. In fact, their, their, their conversation usually goes, well, you shut up because you're stupid. I mean, that's kind of how it goes. And I'm always trying to encourage, you can talk, you can talk with each other, you can have different opinions and converse. Another little pet peeve attached to that, because I think that's so valuable. Understand the idea of truth. If two people come together, I mentioned this, I think, last week, if two people come together and they say two different things that oppose each other, they're two different things, you only have a few options. Either they're both wrong, they could both be wrong. Or one of them's wrong and the other one's right, one way or the other. But you know what's something that can't happen? They can't both be right. If they're saying different things, can they both be right? No, they can't both be right. That goes against the whole idea of truth. If somebody comes along and says, this chair is, what color is this, maroon? Is that maroon? Do we call this maroon? maroon. Nobody's helping me. Okay, so, or what? What was the other word? Wine? Okay, so maroon or wine-colored chair. If I said, this is a maroon-colored chair, and somebody says, no, it's blue, one of us is wrong. I think the person that said it's blue is wrong, but you see what I'm saying? We can't both be right. We can't go, well, you're right for you, and I'm right for me. That can't happen. That's my pet peeves I'm getting into, but I'm getting off my notes, so I'm going to steer back in here. We're going to see a debate in this passage in Acts chapter 15 inside the church, where people in the church have differing opinions. That's never happened before, has it? Oh my gosh. We're going to see this debate. You're going to see on the two sides of this debate, you're going to see on one side this Pharisee group. On the other side, you're going to see uh, Paul is going to be a proponent on the other side, Peter, and eventually we're going to see James on the other side of this argument. And it's a twofold question. The first aspect of this debate that you're going to hear has to do with salvation. This is, this is where it starts to connect home. The question that's going to come up is what is necessary for someone, I could put it this way, to go to heaven, or to be saved, or to be a child of God? What's necessary? You do know that there's disagreements on this, don't you? That, that's exactly what we see. I love that Luke, as he's sharing the history of the church, he doesn't avoid the fact that there's disagreements and they try to come to some conclusion. He includes it and he shares it. This is hugely important. There's going to be a question of salvation. I'm just going to tell you the basic idea of it and then I'll move on. The basic idea is this. On the Pharisee side, I mean, and think about it. 
before Jesus, if somebody said, well, I want to be, okay, Jews, we believe you are the chosen people. I want to be one of the chosen people as well. The Jews said, okay, you need to become a proselyte. You need to do this and this and this and this, and these things, and you adhere to the law, and you're going to follow these guidelines, and then you're a Jew. We're going to treat you like one, and you'll be one of God's people. The, the summary, and this is always awkward in church, but the summary word to describe someone who's decided to say, hey, I'm going to be one of God's people is circumcision. That was a Jewish thing. So if you want to become one of God's people, you had to get circumcised, the guys, right? Had to get circumcised. And so you're going to hear that word. You're going to say the circumcision party and the non-circumcision. That's just a summary statement to say there's one group that says, hey, if you want to be one of God's people, you still have to follow along with all these rules. And for hundreds of years, that's how it was with Jews. And now suddenly there's all these people who are non-Jews that are saying, hey, we're saved, but they're not going along with all this other stuff. And so that's what you're going to hear. So now let's move into the text. So I'm going to read this. And I normally put passages up here. I'm not going to do that today. In fact, if, if you have your Bible and you want to look to Acts chapter 15, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's usually Bibles in the pews in front of you, or not the pews, the chairs in front of you, down below. I'm just going to have you follow along. I didn't want to put all these verses up there. I want you to actually look into your Bibles, and if, if you're having trouble finding it, Acts chapter 15, it's near the back. And look at your table of contents. I'll give you a second to find it. Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read several verses there. If, if you're having trouble finding it, ask somebody next to you, and they will help you find it, I promise. Nobody in here will go, no, I'm not telling you where Acts is. I'll give you a second. See, you guys are out of practice doing this. When I was a kid, they used to make us do these things called sword drills, where they'd give us a passage of Scripture, and we had to hold our Bibles like this, and they'd say, find Acts 15. And you had to be the first to find it. I was never the first to find it. I, was, I think I'd get distracted. John was talking about people that have trouble focusing. I thought, that's my whole life. All right, so I'm going to assume most of you are in Acts chapter 15. So let me, let me read this, okay? So Paul and Barnabas have just come back from the missionary journey. They're in Antioch. It says, but some men came down from Judea. Now it says come down. I, I told you I wasn't going to add commentary, but I need to clarify. Anytime it says come down, they, they saw Jerusalem here. And whether you went north, south, east, or west, if you went away from Jerusalem, it was called going down. So you came down from the area of Jerusalem, Judea, okay? So even though Antioch is north of Jerusalem, in Judea, this still called, came down. So, but, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You have to do this to be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. See, go back up, right? Go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders, like pastors, the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. It's about a 250-mile journey, by the way. Uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now they're talking about that missionary journey that went on all the way up through Tur modern-day Turkey, Right? But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, 
Peter stood up and said to them. Now, in Greek literature, what he's going to do now is meant to be a summary statement. So he's been listening to the debate. He's been participating in the debate. Peter stands up as someone who was one of the original 12, someone with authority in the church, one of the apostles. He stands up and he makes an announcement. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Talking about going to Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I'm going to keep reading, but I need to throw something in there. I love what he says here because he says, why, why you, put the, you know what a yoke is? You ever seen a couple oxen in a picture where they got the, the harness on them? He says, and he makes a point. Part of his point is, why would you try to put that yoke, all the law, trying to keep all that stuff, all that Old Testament law, why would you throw that on them? And he says, which neither us nor our forefathers have ever been able to do. And if you read anything in the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish people, did they ever get to a place where they were doing everything right? No. And Peter, one of his points is, why would you throw this on them? We couldn't do it. Our why would you try to make them do it? That's part of his point. But then he says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they... In other words, salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone. And all the assembly fell silent, verse 12. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So now Peter has shared a miraculous giving of the Spirit. Paul and Barnabas are sharing... They're saying, hey, these things happened by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, and there's been some evidence to show that this was the real deal, is what they're doing. And after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, first we had Peter, who was one of the apostles, stood up. Now, James is going to do the same thing. He's going to make a pronouncement. He listened to a little bit more detail, and now he, as an elder of the church, stands up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon meaning Peter, he's using his Hebrew name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So then he goes to Scripture. After this, I will return, he's quoting. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, and he's going to give out some things that they still ought to do, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. I'm going to explain all that later. For from ancient generations, Moses had, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
We're going to read after this. I'm going to stop right there. You're going to read after this that they decide to compile this information, get it in the form of a letter, send it back out to the churches and say, this is what we've come to. This we've, we've come together. We've debated it out. We've looked to Scripture, and this is what we have. So now I'm going to shift into some walkaway points. I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to be a two-parter. I'm going to give you some this week, and then at the end I'll tell you what we're going to talk about next week. Some walkaway points. In these walkaway points, I want to focus in on the disagreement aspect of what's happening here. I want to point out 1 Corinthians, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19 says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, now this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, he's just been saying in Corinthians, I don't like these divisions. There shouldn't be divisions. You should work towards unity, right? But listen to what he says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So I'm going to tell you right now, here's a perfect example. There is some benefit to having these divisions that are going to lead to genuineness. In fact, this is, I'm going to tell you something amazing right here. This word right here, there must be factions. I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is. It's translated factions right there, and you're actually going to know it. Did you guys know that you knew some Greek? I know that you knew that Katie knew some Greek, and John knows some Greek. I think you know some Greek, don't you? And John knows some Greek. I know a few Greek words. If I'm going to say this Greek word, you're going to go, I know that word. You ready? So the word that's translated factions right there is the word heresies. Who's heard the word heresy before? Well, that's super interesting. Let me read it that way. He's using the Greek word. And I believe it in part, for there must be heresies among you in order that those who are genuine, now this word genuine means tried or tested or approved. So those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I believe what Paul is saying here is this. One of the ways that truth is clarified is through untruth. You get some things that are not quite true. It, the debate, the division, the factions, the heresies, when people come together seeking truth, things become more clarified. And let me dig into this. In fact, let me put it this way. Those note takers in the room that like the notes, here's your first little chunk of notes, okay? Disagreements can lead to a deeper understanding. But I had to throw an if in there. If those involved are dependent on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to take that away just yet. I'll put this up a couple more times, so if you're copying down. But let me focus in on that first part, deeper understanding. I've met many people on many occasions, maybe you have as well, who think they, 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 they look at this Bible, they think they got the gist of it. Okay, I'm, I know, I'm venturing into pet peeve again here, I'm sorry. They think they got the gist of it. I'm going to tell you right now, I, I've been a pastor for nine years. I've been a Christian for longer than that. And even, I, I'm just going to use my mom's testimony. My mom's been a Christian as, um, as long as I can remember anyway. People that spend their lives devoted to studying the Scripture, the, the more they study, the more they go, I think I'm just now starting to learn something. I think I'm just now starting to get it. So if you're coming at it and you're going, well, it's not that hard. I mean, man, I'm telling you what, this is like an infinite well 
of knowledge and wisdom, things. You, I mean, you could dig into this your whole life. You can mine it for little nuggets of truth. And you're never going to get to the end of it where you go, I got it now. I don't need it anymore. You're going to spend your whole life if you devote yourself. This is the word of God. And the thing about this word of God is there's different, I'm, going to, I'm just going to say it this way, there's different levels of understanding. I'm going to use a passage in Hebrews. Hebrews is talking about, actually he's talking about milk and meat of the word. He's saying some of you are on milk of the word. Some of you are digging into meat. I mean, he's talking to a church. He says some of you are like, you know, you're just drinking the milk of the word, just getting little sippies because I want, to, I want you to get some meat you can chew on. And then, so then he says this, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary. Now, when you hear elementary, what do you start thinking of? Elementary school? Now, there's a whole other aspect of what this passage is talking about, but just think about that one little tidbit right there, that you can move on, that's what the idea is there, you can move on from the elementary teachings of the doctrine of Christ, talking about the gospel. You can, you can move on, you can grow up in knowledge. And like it says in the passage right before this in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, he says, I've got all kinds of things to tell you. This is right at the end of Hebrews chapter 5. He says, I have all kinds of things I want to tell you, but, but you can't get it yet because you're still drinking the milk and you haven't started to chew on the meat. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be me. I mean, I, I, I love learning more. Maybe it's because I'm a teacher. But I, I mean, I, I don't want to get up to God and realize, man, this was a vast wealth of knowledge and I was not even scratching the surface. I was just drinking the milk. Besides, I love a big piece of juicy steak more than I love milk anyway. And that's what the word is described as. There's things in here that you might have to chew on and think about. Big truths, deep truths. Therefore, let us leave the elementary. And it isn't like we could ever get to the end of it, like I mentioned before. In Isaiah 55, many of you have heard this passage before. God speaking, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. One of my favorite examples I like to use, and I always use J.J. as my example. I always, I always say, you know, when, when you take J.J. in to the doctor, have you had to take J.J. to the doctor or you leave that to his mom? Have you had to do it? Okay. Well, any of you have had kids before, take, you take your little one to the doctor. And you know they're going to get a shot. You knew it in advance. You know it's good for them. You know it's going to help them. You know in the long run. You could never explain that to them when they're little. Like you couldn't say, well, let me explain how a virus works. And this is what they do. And they kill the virus and they, they put this dead virus into your body. I mean, you try to explain that to the, a little one, they'd be like, yeah. they, they wouldn't even know that they don't know what you're talking about. Like you're, you're using words that they have no comprehension of. But you know what they know? They know that when you, they, they love you and they trust you and you just brought them in and they sat you down in front of this guy that they don't know and this guy just jabbed a needle in their arm and they're like, ah, you know, why did you do that? Don't you love me? I mean, that's, and honestly, that's exactly where many of us are in our relationship with God. Understand, his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts, higher than your thoughts. There's things that God can't even begin to explain to you, for many of you, in the place that you're at right now. That doesn't mean we still don't start digging in to move on from the elementary to these deeper and deeper things. 
Disagreements can lead to a deeper understanding if those involved are, number one, dependent on the authority of Scripture. Notice we saw that in our text as they were dating, the, uh, going through this debate. The final word that came from James the elder, what did he reference? Scripture. And notice that, if you, and you can go back and read this again in Acts 15, notice that he used that Scripture and then he kind of ended it basically say, well, since it says it there, There you go. Because they believed in the authority of the word of God. A classic verse that we use to talk about scripture comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This Bible is inspired by God. And I'm going to tell you right now, the the more I learn about this Bible, the more I believe that statement. The Bible was written, listen, I'm going to say this nicely, so I don't have slides for this. If you want this quote, I can give this to you later. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years. That means the oldest book to the newest book over a period of 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. There is not another holy book on this planet that people call holy books that even comes close to those kinds of realities. But there are many more amazing details that defy natural explanation. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest all penned portions of Scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, from prisons, the wilderness, places of exile, while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its common theme. And if you don't believe that, try to find one. Bring it to me. I'd love to hear it. I've been saying this for nine years. Nobody has found one yet. You know why? Because there isn't one. You're going to have a lot of people say, oh, but this country... No. The Bible blows my mind. When you think about that, those details, that you, you, you can't even hardly get one person to write one thing that completely agrees with itself. Forty different authors, three continents, over 2,000 years of time. All these different styles of writing, and yet at the end, it all agrees, and it has one main theme. Salvation is by God's grace, and man can't do it. Dependence on the authority of Scripture. Some things are more difficult to understand in the Bible. Even Peter himself says this. In one of the letters that Peter writes, Peter refers to the writings of Paul. Listen to what he says. This comes from 2 Peter 3. It says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks 
in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's got to make you feel better, doesn't it? If Peter was reading some of Paul's writings and going, this is hard to understand. Make you feel better, doesn't it? So if you ever sit down and read some of the scripture, you go, man, this is hard to understand. You're not alone. Peter, Peter was a fisherman. He's reading Paul's letters. go, man, this is hard to understand. Which, but notice he says this, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. They, you, you get so many people that with a flippant, shallow perspective, they, they, they read it, they don't quite get it, and they decide, I think that's what it means. Scripture can be twisted, and you may have even met people in your life that have tried to twist Scripture to satisfy their own purposes and their own schemes. I'm going to tell you right now, I just don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't think you do either. Finally, disagreements can lead to a deeper understanding if those involved are dependent on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the Spirit. We see this all throughout this text, wisdom being dispersed through these different people, the way they handled things. They listened to statements from those others that had wisdom. They paid attention. They heard. James actually promises, and it's quite possible he wrote this before this event happened. James writes and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You need wisdom? Seek God. You ask God, God will give it. Here God promises to give wisdom, but it's not any old wisdom. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, this is so, so very important. The natural person, you don't naturally, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. What's folly mean? Foolishness, right? They're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Quite often, someone will sit down with Scripture and they go, man, this is just ridiculous. Here's why. The truths that are in here are spiritually discerned. You need to depend on God's Spirit to give you understanding to what this is. This is why I suggest when you sit down to read the Bible, you ought to, even if it's just five seconds, right before you start reading, go say, Lord, help me understand this today. Now, you may end up like Peter and go, read something and go, I don't get that part. But I think that's a key element of understanding is knowing that you don't get something, isn't it? The reading go, I don't quite get this. That shows some great understanding. And so then you keep reading. And every once in a while, and everybody I've ever known that's been a Christian for more than a few years, they will all say the same thing. They'll say, man, I've been reading my Bible, and, and some days this, and this. But every once in a while, this, it's like this verse jumps out at you, and it goes, man, that's true. That's true. I love it when they, especially newer Christians, they find something and they're reading the Bible for the first time and they get to some passage and go, oh, that's true. That's me. I, I love that when that happens. That's, that's exactly what, that's me. That's, I can't believe that's in there. You know, I, I love that because I, I'm sitting back and looking at it and I'm going, I know what just happened. The Spirit of God just spoke to that person's heart 
opened up this spiritually discerned scripture so that, that when that light bulb went on, that wasn't just a light bulb going on. That was the spirit of God. And so I sit there, I listen to it, and I go, man, that's awesome. They just understood a piece of the Bible, just one little thing. And the thing is, that must have been the exact thing that God wanted them to understand, that's, that this relationship is going through your reading of the scripture. Why did that one jump out? Because that's exactly what God wanted you to hear that day. Number two, disagreements can lead to not only a deeper understanding, but a deeper unity. A deeper unity. If, once again, if those involved are dependent on boldness of leadership and humility of thought. Deeper unity. I have a friend constantly talks to me about the importance of unity. I love him. I, I agree with almost everything he says. But when we talk, we talk about church, we, and, and I'm just going to say, this is what he usually says. He says, man, I, I just think, I mean, there's too many churches in Danville. I mean, we, we should just join forces. I'll be one big church. On some hands, I think that's not a horrible idea. I think that we ought to fight for unity. In fact, let me share a passage of scripture with you. Ephesians chapter four, Paul is writing this. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This whole chapter, actually, Ephesians chapter 4, is about unity, working towards you, striving for unity with other believers. So when my friend starts talking about, man, we should all, I'm like, absolutely, we should be unified as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Unity. But where it breaks down is the process, how we get there, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. I also agree with my friend that most disunity is, well, stupid. I'll just put it that way. Tony Merida, I, I couldn't go through a sermon without at least one Tony Merida quote. Tony Merida says, as Christians, we will find that there are times to take a stand over particular issues regarding the faith and times to avoid quarreling. Many Christians want to fight over everything, from the location of the piano to worship service times, to the order of the worship service, to the style of music played at church, to whether homeschool or public school is the right education route for Christian kids. On the other hand, a culture of tolerance has produced another type of Christian who thinks that Christ followers should never have a heated debate over even the most important theological matters. One group fights over everything while the other group won't stand up for anything. I would absolutely agree with this is many times the state of our church. Many of the disunity that we have between churches is over stuff that's just stupid. Just stupid stuff. There's churches have split over colors of carpet before. And there's dumb stuff that people get, don't get along with. Well, I don't think the chairs should be this. I mean, there's people that, there's people that probably wouldn't go to this church because we have chairs instead of pews. Can you believe that? Nuts. These are more comfortable, by the way. There's, there's ridiculous things that people end up arguing over. But there's also things that we ought to go to bat over. Let me go here. Back to our statement. Disagreements can lead to deeper unity if those involved are dependent on the boldness of leadership. In our passage, listening to those who have risked their lives to, for the sake of the gospel, we heard Paul and Barnabas who who just risked a life. I mean, Paul was stoned uh, and they thought he was dead. 
Rocks had been hit on him until they thought he was dead. He got back up and he went and shared the gospel some more. You got people that are risking their lives for the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, Peter, James. You see these people as they come together for debate, they trust their leadership. There is such a thing as God-given leadership. Listen to Paul writing in Ephesians. God, he gives to the church. This is what he's talking about. He says, there are gifts that God gives to the church. And this is what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which another word for shepherds is pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. Notice in there the word unity pops in. Unity comes from, in this passage, what God has given. One of the things that God has given is biblical leadership. First Peter says something similar. First Peter 5.5, 5, Peter's talking, he says, Likewise, you, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It's not talking about olders. It didn't say be subject to your olders. Is that what it says? It says be subject to your elders. Elders are ones that were or chosen by the church to help lead the church and guide the church, people who had proven themselves to be dedicated to the word of God. And he says, Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, which leads me to my next and final point today. Disagreements can lead to a deeper unity if those involved are dependent on the boldness of leadership and the humility of thought. In our passage, we don't see ego getting in the way. I don't know if you notice that. You may have to read Acts 15 again. You may find, if you read through there, it's not about ego. You don't see that. That's, that's, that's the thing about the boldness of the leadership. The, the boldness of the leadership can be done in complete humility. We don't see ego getting in the way. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, I used this verse a minute ago, let me say it again. Notice he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So this unity is flowing from these things like humility and gentleness with patience. You say, well, what exactly is humility? Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, that means consider, think about, count others more significant than yourself. Now, this is just a huge point of basic conversation, that, just good advice. You go into conversations, you go into debates, you go into any type of situation where you're trying to determine the truth. If you go at it with this idea, now, let's be honest. Many times, do we go into conversations thinking, this other person's more significant than me? No. In fact, what are we doing the whole time we're listening to somebody that we disagree with? You ever, you ever been listening to somebody you disagree with, and the whole time you're thinking, you're formulating? Okay, I'm going to use that against them in just a minute. Because I'm, oh man, they said that. I'm going to make sure they hear about that in a second. You start to formulate. Instead of really genuine, humility is considering them more significant than yourself. You see that played out through this entire passage. 1 Peter 3.8, Peter writes again, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, like I said, I'm going to have a two-parter, so I'm about done right now. 
I know that when I talk about these things, it stirs up all sorts of other things. And that's what I want to get into next week. But I know that with churches, I'm going to, let's just be honest. Let's, let's take it into real life for just a moment. There are churches in this town that would say, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be baptized. That's not true. Okay? But that's not my main concern. Because my main concern is what you see in this passage, what the Pharisees are really promoting, the real reason, the reasoning behind what they were doing is they were seeing all these other people become Christians and they didn't look and act and talk quite the same as they did. Christianity, the church, at the end times, we're going to see, Christ says, at the end, there will be people from every tribe and every nation. They're going to stand before God and praise Him. Every language type are going to be there. I'm going to be honest. I've noticed many people who are, and I'm just going to be real blunt, some of the older Christians, sometimes when they see newer Christians come, they, they want them to conform and it's nothing about the gospel. It's all about, this is the way you ought to look if you're a Christian. I think that's at the heart of what was going on with these Pharisees. Their culture was changing. They were losing their Jewish identity. It was being taken down, and they were using Scripture to try to build up. No, you have to do these things. And no. It comes down to the gospel. And what you're going to see in the declaration that was made, there are some things that are important that, that James emphasizes. He says, now, these things are important, but it's got to be about the gospel, about the grace of God. We are all saved by grace alone, with, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Nobody's going to stand before the Father and have done all the right things to stand before God and be accepted by him. This is where we're going to go next week. Deeper unity and deeper understanding means a deeper gospel community. A deeper gospel community. When I think of church, that's what I think of. A community of people that are centered on and focused on the gospel. And what draws them together is all about the gospel. This is where I absolutely agree with my friend to say, you know, there's some churches in this town that they, they, all these people go to this church because it's this style and all these people go to this church because it's this style and all these people go to this church because it's this style. And maybe you come to this church because you like this style. It ought not to be that way. Style ought not to be any part of the conversation when we talk about the gospel and what holds us together. You ought to appreciate variety of style found within people who love the gospel and love Christ. Next week, we'll talk about what is important, what, what did come through that. But for you, I just want to say this. Hold on to these things. Hold on to having a deeper understanding of Scripture. I, I want to move on from the elementary, and I'm going to tell you right now, the best way to do that is just by digging into the Word of God. Now, I know that I'm supposed to have communion, but it's kind of late. Would it kill anybody if I just said, let's do this next week? You guys okay with that? Okay, let's do that. I'm going to pray, close, let you guys get out of here, and uh, encourage you to come back next week because this isn't over yet. There was a declaration that James made that we need to dig into. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day. I thank you for this story, Lord. I know that as I've shared it today, there's probably more questions than answers as we think about what happened in Jerusalem with this debate. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help us to focus on the word of God, that we would hold to the authority of scripture, we'd hold to the authority of your word. Lord, I pray that this church would be a church that delves into the gospel of Jesus, the grace of Christ, and no other thing. And I pray that we'd be focused on that. Bring us to deeper understanding and deeper unity with each other, first and foremost. God, I hope that you'd branch this out. Give us opportunities to fellowship with other believers in this town that may not look like us, may not sound like us, but we're part of the same community that's following Jesus. In your name I pray this, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.